But we come up every Saturday and Sunday because of the peace, the tranquility, and also the views of Dublin City. You can see um, the harbour. I love to be able to see the sea from here. Three Rock has never had any publicity in the past, but I've got to say, I mean, it's so unspoiled. You know, I come up here on a Saturday morning and I would see the deer. I've come across families of deer, you know, just running across your path. The fact that it's just so unspoiled. Quite often, a lot of places, when they become touristy, they just lose, you know, the, the appeal. I feel that I can see Hollyhead from here. It's just superb. And on a clear day, you can, in fact. I'm from Dublin and uh, in Tallaght. I come up to Tree Rock to race my bike. Yeah, steady. It's got a lot of jumps and a lot of off-road trails. I'm up here mountain biking. I just um, finished work and get, get up in the mountains in the evenings just to get out of the city and get a bit of sports done. Well, I'd normally come up to Tree Rock Mountain to walk the dog, usually because it's a nice place to walk the dog, get away from everyone. You let the dog off the leash and he can go to his own thing. And on a nice day, it's a lovely view. Clean air out of the city. It beats the gym, you know, and uh, it's just just beautiful. Like it's peace and quiet away from the humdrum, mm-hmm. you know. That way, yeah. Well, and even like from the top, it puts the whole city the rushing around and the traffic in perspective. Yeah, you are so close to such a beautiful natural place up here. You know, it's not you can hear the traffic in the distance there, just but the birds are louder, <laughs> which yeah. is a neat contrast to the city. I think it's very much underestimated as an area to go. Um, among people I know, not many people would view the Three Rock as being in, being in that class at all. Um, it's funny, a lot of Dublin people, um, just from my experience, would ignore the, the mountains on their doorstep and would go off, oh, let's go to the mountains, like, say, down the country, and that they'd forget all about this resource here. Uh, well, I mean, I, from, I, mean I, I came originally from Cavan, and we had the same attitude as the mountains down the other end of Cavan. Nobody knows about them. Um, you know, down, down around the Kilka Mountains, and uh, it's the same up here. It's, it's, it's good in a way, I suppose, and bad in a way. It's good in a way because there's not too many people around, but it's, it's, it's kind of sad as well to see it so neglected. I mean, it does, there's never been a picnic table or anything put up here. Now, I suppose those kind of things can spoil a place, but um, I think it's, it probably is neglected slightly. Um, but certainly, it's, it's very beautiful. It's probably not the hardest hill to climb in terms of, mm. you know, but that's probably it's. A good point as well because it's easy for families to come up here and, and everybody can actually walk up to the top and, and get the view, you know. The great thing about Tree Rock and walking Tree Rock is it's very manageable. It's got an incline, but it's not that steep an incline. Uh, so you get good exercise, but it doesn't tax you too much. And I suppose the, the, the key thing about it then is that it has a beautiful view out over Dublin Bay and you can see the, the Pigeon House and the, the ferries and out, out to Bray. It's a beautiful place and it reminds me of Kerry, where my father and mother came from. My father came from a beautiful place called the Claylock Valley, near Glenfreskin County, Kerry. And it's like the Three Rock Mountain here. It's got forests, some mountain streams and heather-covered mountain. And uh, it reminds me of this, uh, this place in Kerry that my father grew up in. I also spent the first uh, ten years of my life in Carsevine County, Kerry. And at the foot of a mountain called Bina Tee, which is mentioned in the song Born to Shrida. Standing here, uh, if we look east, three or four times in the year, you can see three or four mountain peaks in Wales. If we look north, I can see the Mourne Mountains most days. And it, uh, looking northeast, uh, Steve Gullion in South Armagh. I can see Lugnaquilla, the highest mountain in Wicklow, here from the Fairy Castle on top of the Three Rock Mountain.
I'm a hill walker and I'm, I like the environment and I like the mountains and the trees and I regret that, uh, you know, there are masts in places like this. But so long as they're confined like this to one mountain, as they are here, and this tree rock serves the city uh, and they're here in one cluster, I, I think that's the best thing to do. It's certainly better than if there were different masts spread all over the foothills of County Dublin. Um, yeah, and we have to have it if we want to have our television service and we want to have our radio and we want various other kinds of service. It's part of the way we live. And not only the ones you might regard as entertainment, like radio and television, you've all the, the stuff that the likes of the ESB or the guards have here, which are v- absolutely vital. So it has just become a part of the way we live. If, even if we don't entirely like it, uh, we have to live with it. Well, now, I've lived on the foot of the Dublin Mountains, the Tree Rock Mountain, for 80 summers. Some were good and some were bad. But those men lived there and they're dead and gone. Some of them didn't reach my age and some, there's maybe one or two a little older. But the likes of them men you never see again. They were happy men. And they took life. They didn't expect a lot out of life. But they put a lot into life, you see. And we love to see these young people coming along. Without young people, to be no old people. And to come along and you treat them right and show them things. They'd be able to show their sons and daughters things too, you know. Just show them things and say, look, that's a spruce tree. And you say, that's a goat and things like that. Because you can't expect people that's not from the country area, out towns or cities, to know, you see. And... They weren't taught, they were, they were taught more about, what would we say, the moon and the stars and comets and everything. They weren't taught so much about nature. But now the teachers seem to think they'll teach them more about nature and they're going back. Because I have grandchildren, they come with books and they point out things about woods and forests, squirrels and everything like that. And I say, yeah, I can tell them where they are. And they love to go and see where they are. And it's great, isn't it? Now, as we look south towards the two rocks, it's a continuation of the three rocks. And for though, it was a game preserve, the home of the red ghost. And it was the people that had owned it employed gamekeepers. There was three brothers, but only one of them was gamekeeper. But the two other brothers would be enlisted periodically to help out when there'd be a big shoot on. And there was, this particular gentleman had been in the First World War he lost his legs and yet he was a champion shot so the O'Reilly brothers be engaged the game people and his tuber they carry him to the base of the mountain which was around 1,700 feet at that stage and the, there was boats set up that had been there and they placed him in the boats and he'd shoot various drives of grouse and they'd come that evening and they'd carry him on their shoulders back down which would be about two miles down to the main road there was it's not a, it was a lame way that time. But that man this was in the First World War that lost his legs. He shot on that mountain now, the two rock and father over to Braddon and all, for about 40 years till he was a very old man with the two stumps. And the Royalies always carried him to the Rabel on the backs. And they'd put him sitting on the back, leg over his shoulder stumps, and the other lad would hold his two hands behind him. And they'd rest him then when they come to a stone like where we were standing, put him sitting up, and the third royal would be walking behind, he'd be, uh, as you call a tow horse. He'd take him over, and 
Hiroshima, and they get them to top them out and they bring them back down, and they get about seven shillings each for that now, for a day, and all the grub they need, and all the food they need, and you take an average working man getting six shillings for working nearly 12 hours a day. Wasn't it handy money? Now, the Three Rock Mountain was grazed by sheep until about 1949, and the type of sheep they kept was not weather sheep. All the hills, including the Three Rocks roundabout, were grazed by sheep because they were very suitable for sheep. How come they were dry and sheep didn't get foot rot or anything like that? On wet ground, sheep gets foot rot. It's a disease of the hoof, you know. And so all, everyone, even the smallest farmers, because there was common grazing in places, you see, had sheep. And then they gradually drifted into cattle. But they did have a cattle, principally a cow and calf. A cow for milk for the house, you see, and they rear up the calf and sell it for when they come to pay the rent at Christmas times. Other times, the sheep had to be shorn. That meant the wool had to be shorn often. And his was brought and sold by the pound weight. And each sheep had an average of seven pounds of wool on their back. And that, and that time, just after the war, it made 25 shillings a pound. And it was packed in big fleeces, and the, it was packed properly. It held 500 fleeces of wool. So you realise the price of a pack of wool. Then gradually, the lower area began to be built up with houses, and the sheep owners had dog problems, and there were sheep being killed regularly. So gradually as the houses encroached, the sheep went farther back the hill. Eventually, people got out of sheep. Because it was always the first owner of the sheep nearest the road that was killed. They were killed. So then farming near Dublin was got into the decline because the younger people were educated by their fathers and there was no living in farming. So the land then became vacant and... The forestry division, the Department of Lands, not Quilcha as we know it now, they decided to buy the land at the cheapest possible price. This mountain we're standing on now was bought at £6 an acre and there was 110 Irish acres in it and you can work that out, £600 or thereabouts. The year of 1950, the forestry division, the Department of Lands, decided they plant the Three Rock Mountain as we know it now. They divided up into compartments, about 33 acres in each compartment, and started the fence. So it took a whole year to fence the thing, but as they fenced it, they fenced in a straight line as near as possible. They avoided twisting and turning of the original fence, you see, and they got through it quickly. So in August 1951, the planting started and it started in compartment 33. That's where we're standing now. So it continued on to there. There was 22 men employed planting at a weekly wage to each man of £2.12 shillings, less 4 pence D for a stamp. You had to have a, have a stamp to get your money. And you're also, there was insurance and stuff like that stopped over See, so they planted each man was expected to plant about 400 trees a day and measure and the trees were planted at 6 by 6 
That's six feet everywhere, you see. And they were deciding that. So to plant 400 trees, you need to be a very good man. And due to the, a lot of the, the workers being coming through the labour exchange, I've been in charge, I don't have to look at them. They were great men, but not suitable for this type of work. More a desk or something like that, you see. So they only stick it about a fortnight. Say, one lad said to me one time, he says, I get more for selling a paper round. So I well believe you. But say, in time to come, these trees will be here and there'll be a monument to you if you even sold one. But he says, sure, I won't know, but so it'll be still there. So continued on with the planting, and they sold predominantly spruce. But there were seven or eight kinds of trees sold. There was Sika spruce, Norway spruce, Pina contarta, Coskin pine, Spanish chestnut, ash. The original Christmas tree was always Norway spruce. And they sold the Christmas trees under a power line because they'd be cut early and they wouldn't grow up through the power line. And they were trying to introduce hardwoods at that stage and 25% hardwoods to the whole lot. But they had trouble with wildlife. So I was engaged then to counteract the wildlife, to control them, in other words. But we had a lot of beech trees sold, plants, I should say, and they were about two feet tall. And they were cut off at the very top, about 18 inches from the ground, the same as you could have with a knife, but at an angle of 45 degrees. They brought experts, couldn't discover it. So I went today one night and I dug a little track along and I saw the marks of hairs in the clay and it was the hairs were cutting the tree. They sit up on the hunchers, they were bigger than a rabbit, they cut it 18 inches. Nearly, you could nearly measure it 18 inches. Right along they were destroyed all the beach, so therefore they had to be taken out. There's one particular area there where they sowed pinus and cygnus and it couldn't be grown very well and they were getting difficulty growing it. So I was asked to, there and we made pit plant. Pit plant, and that's you dug a hole in the ground. Three or four weeks before you put the tree down and you always dug it in the shape of a V like that now and you sowed the tree in the centre of the V and the roots back to the prevailing wind. So the wind would be blown out but still the roots would get a hold and they were kind of an anchor for holding the tree. But then, as they progressed, they got a machine to turn over the sod. It was called mound planting. And in boggy ground, they'd see these big, long mounds. Oh, it could be four or five hundred yards, you see. And a man just come along with a spade and made a nick and stick down his plant and so forth. And, that's it. and the division between each mound was a kind of a small drain. It allowed the water to get away. And places where they couldn't do that, you drained manpower and the idea, the shape of the drain, you, the, you hardened by, you know the hardened, uh, bone that hardens back. Well, you drain that way, just the same as you had the hardened. You had the centre drain, you saw your drains going in at an angle. And the water must, you must put into the water flow slow. If it rushes long into the drains, it doesn't gather the soil, water off the soil. It just flows slow. And if you have a big flow, it silts up and it records cleaning. Now, some of these drains would be four feet deep and recording where you had the hernback design. it come in nice and slow from each side and didn't silt up. And it get the ground time to drain. Where it was rushing away, it didn't give it time to drain. But then you could only do that where 
like in rocky places or buggy in rocky places where they couldn't get these machines. But I, I say they probably have a way of doing it now other than by Manta. If you look down into the valley from the Tree Rock Mountain and look across the mountain the opposite side, you'll see a roid lion. If you look across how straight it appears. And if you're in the valley, will you wonder how that could be made that straight? When the forest was started, you see, you had to have a plan. And the plan was drawn up on a map. And you took into consideration the elevation and the contours. But that was all done on a table. And it was practical when you went out. You decided to break up the mountain into portions. They were known as compartments. And to do that, you had to have roid lines between each compartment. Now, the roid line, we tried to get it as straight as possible in order, in latter years, then they could work, have a plan of work, you understand. But the roid lines was about, what would we say, uh, about four perches wide. And that's about 22 yards, I suppose. About four perches wide then they decided to go a bit wider because when the trees start to grow, the branches would grow in and go to the light. Everything has to go to the light, you see. And they turn up, the road lines were smaller. But then they decided around 30 yards would be a little better, you see. And so on each side of the road line, three rows of Japanese larch because the Japanese larch was fire-resistant, and if they burned, it would help the, the thing. And also they had to have fire lines. And the difference of the fire line was it was screefed off of all vegetation. So as the fire couldn't spread across, you see. Also, they sold 22 yards or a chain of Japanese large each side. And if you've got a straight ditch running from one end of the mountain, it's quite simple to have a road line, just the ditch on your right or left and step out 25 yards or so and continue on the straight line. That didn't always happen, very rarely. So you had to sort out your own road lines. So you got a line of poles. When I say poles, there were sticks you cut out of the forest, and they were about 10 feet high. And you sent a man as far as you could see him, and he'd stick down a pole, and he'd hold it. And you stick down a pole. Then you'd stand back from the pole a bit, and you'd sight a line of poles between the pole you stuck down his, in a dead straight line, you see. Right off, you saw the line of trees along that. That was known as a pole line. And the trees were usually six by six, six feet apart. Right, and you continued on until you overtook that man again, the first man. And the pole he had was the actual pole you'd be starting again. You didn't that right till you got to the, the fence, wherever the fence would be, you see. And you had a right line. As well as the great views here on the Tree Rock Mountain, it's a place with a, quite a varied wildlife. It's not immediately obvious. Of course, there are hundreds of deer, mainly sika and hybrids of sika and red deer. Um, and uh, the interesting season here is the rutting season when the males make this very strange, the stags make this very strange whistling sound. And uh, you can hear it's very weird to hear this whistling sound coming from the uninhabited forests and mountains. It's like there's somebody out there playing an instrument, but actually it's the stags whistling during the mating season of October and November. They're also kind of unpredictable and aggressive and dangerous. I remember one time crossing here with two dogs, crossing a mountain path here in the tree rock, and a stag stood in front of me about 100 metres away. So I closed the distance down to about 50 metres, and 
there was no sign of him moving and he had the head down a bit in an aggressive stance so I just turned around and went the other way. I learned later that the dogs actually were a factor, that they are intimidated by dogs in the rutting season, they don't like dogs around. Um, apart from the deer, your foxes, the brown mountain hare, young leverets, rabbits and the odd stoat, you'll see the odd stoat ring around here in the grass. Um, Bird life is wonderful. We have a pair of ravens who nest here on the metal platform on top of the TV mast here behind us. And uh, they generally breed early in the spring. And you can see them here soaring on the winds coming up from the city below, lifting them into the air. They don't use their wings very much. They let the wings do all the work. The wide expanse of their wings do all the work for them. And they just coast along on the rising wind. When in the late spring a pair of kestrels, falcons, come in, and usually, generally breed three or four young here every year. And sometimes here in late July, early August, you can see three or four young falcons, kestrel falcons, learning how to fly and fend for themselves. Shortly after that, in August, they'll disappear and they'll go to the coastlands or farmlands where there's better feeding in winter because on the mountain here, there's not much insect or small mammal life in, in winter. Um, the mountain is full of grouse, of course, and you can hear them cackling. They're a very distinctive sound when they're disturbed. And they have this uh, very strange habit, well-known habit, of flying out. When disturbed, they'll fly from their nest holding one wing down as if it's broken to draw the predator or the person who has caused the disturbance away from the nest where the young are. And once you get near the, the grouse, it'll then take off in full flight. Nothing wrong with its wing at all. It's just its own method of defence. Uh, meadow pipits and wren are common up here in the mountain because they're like, they're like a coniferous forest anyway. But interestingly, in the autumn, you can often see crossbills who migrate in from Scandinavia when it gets cold in Scandinavia. You can see them here. They feed on the, the kernels or the cones of the pine trees. And they're very distinctive birds with the size of a blackbird and they're built across to the hook shape for the breaking of stiff cones. I kind of view the mast as a challenge in a way. It's like if you get to the top of the mast, you're doing well on the mountain. The mast is usually placed at the highest point. Um, on another point of view, I could, could see where people are coming from. It's viewed like as an eyesore. There's nothing covering, covering the mast up as such. You know, It just sticks out like a monstrosity. But I view it as a kind of, uh, like it's kind of the lighthouse you would at the end of a pier. It's... That's the highest point, so and they're necessary as well. I mean, yeah. don't have anything much against them personally. It's like the one in Kapoor. It comes, yeah. it becomes part of the landscape after a while. You know, it's, I mean, like it's beside a city, and it's kind of, you know, it's part of man, man and nature together. I mean, I wouldn't. It's not a particularly beautiful thing, I suppose, yeah. really, but it is. As Anne said, it's kind of a beacon. You know, it's something to aim for. You know, and you realise it, it always seems it's further away than you think when yeah. you're walking, especially on a hot evening. Yeah. Uh, we're standing here surrounded by about seven or eight masts of various types. They look a bit out of place here on the mountain. They don't blend in with the natural beauty and the wild nature of the place. But I suppose they have a function, I don't know, but they don't look great. I can remember the first mast being erected in about 1960. I remember the preparation for the erection of the mast. And that was in about 1960, the best of my knowledge, you know, because we didn't concentrate on the mass then. There was no resistance from local people to the mass. It was an obvious to see a thing that could be built on the hill. But what was strange, if we were two miles down, say, Ballantyre, 
to see the red light. We didn't realise the red light was a precaution to prevent planes in it. You see, we thought the mass was occupied when the red light was on, similar to a railway station, you see. Maybe everyone didn't think that, but no one was that well up. But they didn't, uh, didn't uh, kind of uh, resist them. They, they were a great novelty. In fact, they were proud of them. And there was one son of this very, uh, we could term a professor, well, he appeared to be. He had a long white beard and he was dressed in tweeds and all. And he was telling us about the mass and about the way the bounce signal across the hose and all like that. Well, we were amazed. And one fella, well, he's dead, poor fella now, wasn't what you say with the times. And he says, will you see the signal going to hose? And your mum was explaining there was a signal. And, well, now he says, you, this fella wasn't too well, you can say what he, like, that he you there might believe you, I don't. <laughs> but, but then, as I say, the mass is there, and there's a gigantic structure. We're here on the top of Tree Rock. You're looking, actually, over here at the Three Rocks themselves, which give the mountain its name. And the main, highest mast to be seen here now is the new RTE mast which is 120 metres high that's not fully in operation yet there's just one radiating TV antenna on top of that and then beside that is a tower which is uh, the Telecom Aaron Tower and uh, for the, at the present we share space on the Telecom Aaron Tower there, a lot of the RTE antennas are on top of that and uh, the next one here beside us would be an ESB mast um, the ESB would use this one for uh, controlling a lot of their system and it's uh, links that come in and links that go out to do other different destinations from that one. Then further down uh, the guards have a mast here that's a, a small one down there that looks down onto the city. Um, ESAT have uh, another tower here as well with quite a lot of dishes and uh, telephone related stuff. Another lot of the masts around here as well would have antennas which serve the hospital services. Uh, there are other services for uh, the airport carried here as well. And then there are a number of other masts which I couldn't identify. Um, I can tell you that over the brow of the hill, a little further down, you'll probably see the tops of some of the local radio masts, which are just off the slope of the hill. There's a great development in recent years of a requirement by all kinds of companies for the ability to transfer digital information from one place to another. If you have a big company who has uh, a premises, say, out in one of the industrial estates, out on the, the Nace Road or somewhere like that, they may need to transfer data instantly and they want to be able to transfer sometimes telemetry like ourselves uh, from one premises there to maybe another one in Dunleary or somewhere like that and they would be delighted to rent space on masses like this and this is the reason why on all of the masts not only ours you see all these little dishes lots and lots of there are hundreds of dishes up here with various kinds of services coming in and being routed through these stations and back down it's a new market in, in the whole technology business the ability to provide people with routes to transfer their information from one place to another there's a necessity for the RTE hardware up on Three Rock because in order to serve uh, the southern part of the city out towards Dunleary and Black Rock and even Donnybrook itself uh, we need to have antennas in a place where we can look straight down on those areas. Kipur wouldn't have a look at, even at Donnybrook and as you go further out uh, towards Dunleary they, that would be well shaded from Kipur by the, the lower slopes of the Dublin Mountains. So Kipur tends to serve 
out towards the west, towards Mullingar and a whole lot of the Midlands and the main part of the city as well. And then in a way, this station here would back up all of that because it covers most of the city and then it covers the area that Kipur does not, which would be out the southern side of the city. So that's where your television is coming from here and your VHF radio as well. Now, my interest in it is that I do communications for outside broadcasts for radio and uh, we have a very important receive point here because we, re- we have two antennas on the mast and uh, they're arranged so that they're connected together. One of them points in a northerly or slightly northeasterly direction and the other one points more westerly. And we combine the outputs of the, those two antennas to give us a broad sweep looking across the city and looking fairly far west. We could look out more westerly, say, than the Phoenix Park. So we use that to receive signals from the roadcasters and any other outside broadcast that we want to do around the town. Uh, we do... Um, masses and church services of various kinds and lots of other one-off outside broadcasts. We can just fly into town, put up an antenna quickly and get a shot into here fairly reliably. So that's a a permanent antenna here and a permanent route down into Donnybrook. So effectively, once we get the signal into here, it's in the switching centre in Donnybrook. So that's uh, my main interest in it. We've done lots of great OBs uh, over the years from here. Uh, We've done outside broadcasts. Uh, from the ferries. Uh, we did it uh, from the, the main ferries and from some of the other uh, ones that have now gone. Uh, we, did, we did one from the jet foil uh, in the early days when the jet foil was running uh, all the way to Hollyhead and back signals back into here and down into Donnybrook. So it's a, a, a great location for us for outside broadcast because of its height and because of the way it can look out. Uh, we can do stuff from Dunleary as well. At the time when uh, the tall ships were in, we'd have done uh, mobile ones on boats into here as well and we've done other uh, ones as far north or right up to, to Dundalk we can get back into here with signals so it's a great location for us in fact if today was a little clearer you'd be looking straight up at the, the Carlingford Mountains and the Mountains of Morn from here uh, perfectly clearly and indeed uh, to the west you can see quite a bit as well so that, that's uh, one of the main uses we have for outside broadcast for Three Rock you see that valley there? That is known as the Lugdu or the Black Glen. And there was a story told that a little old lady sat, the market is there yet, where the water comes out, sat at the Lugdu. Reputed to be the Banshee, but she in a scale of yoga. And there was a man, he was what the term now, an alcoholic, but he wasn't an alcoholic, but he used to take a few drinks because he hadn't the money to be an alcoholic. But he decided, coming that night across the pathway where the old lady used to sit, he didn't like to see her there. So he decided he'd tell her to go off out or that like that. He says he started to make gestures at her. He was a big man, about six foot two, by the name of O'Reilly, big, strong man. In fact, he worked at timber and in the quarry. But she said, now, my good man, pass on, she says, and when you arrive home, you'll have a heavier load to carry. Off he went, anyhow. And his father was there, and his father didn't agree with the sons. There were three sons, but they had a, an argument, men and beer. And there was a shotgun lying against the, the table. It fell on the floor and went off, and shot Oyes out the two men. And the story went, that was the heavy load he had to carry. 
But that's the story. The old people told stories. And as they told them so often, they believed in them and added a little bit here and there where it was. We ended up shooting wildlife in 1972. That was the last five goats were shot on the plantation then. But now, as you see, it's overrun with deer. And they're Japanese deer, Sika deer, and there's some Manchurian deer in it. And there's hybrid deer, and the Sika hybrid. So that's the hybrid deer here, it's a, a, a Sika hybrid on all the mountains, you see. And there's very few, it's all hybrid deer now, there's very few red deer left around the hills. In some part of Wicklow, you will get the occasional one, but uh, they're mostly hybrids. And that's, uh, you can just walk around the hills on any stage now and you'll see 50 to 70 hinds, that's female deer, and they're causing terrible damage to farms, to fences, to crops. And that's periodically, they have to be culled and to keep them in check. But people come out walking to love to see them. And they associate them with Bambi. And which is quite well, you know. I like to see all like that. But when it's culling, uh, it has to be humane. It must be humane. And you're culling deer, you must kill them with one shot each time. And never have to afford a second one. And if, you, if a deer is in a position when there's not a good, safe backstop, or you think you're not competent, leave them there. You'll get them again. There's no hurry. Get as near as possible. And that's the whole secret of it. You'll read in books and you'll hear a telephone coming, I shot a deer at 500 yards. He didn't. The deer must have dropped dead. <laughs> but that's the way you do it. You approach as near as possible. Sure, you have a, a good background, safe background. And the position of the deer... Some people, the experts emphasise you shoot them in the thorax. It's fatal, but not instant. So therefore, if you shoot them just forward the shoulder and in the neck, it's instant, they're down. Well, now that's a tricky shot. But if you get within 60 yards or less, it's not a tricky shot. But if, in the evening when it'll be closing in, getting dark, we'll say, if a deer is there and you shoot them in the thorax, they can run from any 100 yards into vegetation, and except you have a dog to find them, you see. And when you're engaged in shooting deer for people professionally, you kill the deer instantly. You clean out the deer, they call it gralocking the deer, and toy something on it then, such a white, and the people that know here the shot, they come along and collect them up in the evening time. When you press the trigger and garlic, your responsibility ends. But you're quite responsible all the time. You're responsible to the quarry and to kill a humanity you must do. If you don't do that, hand in your rifle. The hut started in or about 1956. Now, could be a little before or a little after. And it became very popular then as a camping place, you know. If we look down, we'll see a field, uh, what, 200 yards below us. The huts start, that was where the huts ended, and they started just above the Glenmore or the crossroads, as you know it now, on the east side of the road. And I'd say there was 50 huts there. 
And along the 50 huts, there was bus bodies and carriages. Was uh, They made them into huts and all like that. And there was people uh, coming, they rented little plots of ground off local farmers and they erected huts. And they'd come out the weekend and they'd stay the weekend and then they'd go away till the following week. But this was purely summer residence now, summertime. And on some farms could be five, six and eight huts, you know. And it brought in a kind of social revenue to the farmer. But then again that it tied up a piece of land, you see. And the mere fact it tied up a piece of land and these gentlemen then uh, did come along and after uh, went on for years now I say five or six years but then uh, it was decided or they didn't look that well and people started objecting to them and then the county council decided they'd levy a charge on the landowner as a rate then uh, like it kind of was a fad that lasted about five years and it gradually fizzled out and the old huts, or whatever you like to call them, start falling down. And the people that owned them then left them to the, the landowner to do what he liked with them. He usually got them into a corner and set for them because there was nothing left at that. But during that period now, there'd be nothing to see, we say, 40 or 50, mostly men, all the time men. I don't remember any women. And not time women kind of come the Sunday at 11 o'clock and they stayed till three with their brothers or the father and all. But then they'd go away home because, like, they had to go a long ways to, for public transport into Dublin, you see. They were all Dublin people come out and some of them worked in factories and some of them worked in the gas works. Now, my father had some of them on his land and the people that hadn't worked in the gas works. But then the huts, anyhow, they... they it was a fad, like, these things come and go. It was fashionable to be out in the mountains because you were way out the country that time. You were 12 miles from the gas works. It must be 100. We felt a little bit inferior to these people because they'd be very well dressed. And we we wouldn't, you know. And uh, because due to our mode of life, we couldn't. We could be dressed well enough for uh, a Sunday or that. These could be dressed terribly well every day. I love the, uh, the seasons here. You can see it changing. The heather changes from a brown to a type of green. The grass grows between it. And you have the frost and the ice and the snow at this altitude in winter and so on and so forth. But um, I think it's a wonderful amenity, not really used very much by people, surprisingly enough, considering I'm looking down at a million people at the moment and I see less than a dozen around me. I get a great sense of place here. A geographical sense of place. I know my place in the world when I'm standing here because I know where I am in relation to Wales, the north of Ireland, the Wicklow Mountains, the sea, Holt, everything. And sometimes when I'm standing here, I look down at Dublin Bay, the perfect horseshoe shape, and I say, when the Vikings came in here and they found this place, this perfect shape for shelter, with a river, the mouth of a river, the Liffey flowing into it, they must have thought they landed in heaven. It had all the features that they were looking for at that time. No wonder they settled there. They were a hardy breed of men, the mountain men. And they were known as the mountain men. And when they, when they went down to Dundrum, the same as they were going into a village, you see. And everyone would be looking in the mountain. Here's the mountain men. And the mountain men has arrived. And you'd know them because they're always tanned, kind of, you know. Even tanned with the wind. And they dressed the kind of different. And one particular man said, 
I don't even understand their accent. <laughs> Strange in latter years, that came up to. We had a tug of war team, a chap from Dundrum, he was into these athletic stuff, and he asked me, could he come and look at tug of war? He originally came from Clare, you see, and he said that you might take on with us. I said, yes, certainly, you're quite welcome. No, so he had his lady friend with him, and the two of them were sitting watching at the train in the tug of war, and he just said to her, they have an accent of their own. <laughs> you see? <laughs> of course, I wouldn't understand him. <laughs> but uh, how it come back after the years, you know, they had an accent of their own. But he's gone to pull tug of war with, and we represented Ireland after. It's lovely to look back in time and see everything around the boat and now where I'm standing on the three rocks again, look down at all the modern housing where there was nothing there at all. And you can see everything is encroaching daily and daily and other than the three rocks being in 1,400 feet, I suppose, in time to come we build on. <laughs>